April 14th, 1994. On this day, there was a hearing on Capitol Hill. Seven tobacco executives were before Congress, and they were swearing in. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. They all answered in the affirmative, lending credibility to their testimony. And so the questioning begins. Representative Ron Wyden, yes or no, do you believe nicotine is not addictive? Mr. William Campbell, I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. Mr. Wyden, Mr. Johnson, question mark. Mr. James Johnson, Mr. Congressman, cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definition of addiction. Wyden, we'll take that as no. Again, time is short. I think that each of you believe that nicotine is not addictive. We would just like to have this for the record. Mr. Joseph Tadeo, I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. Mr. Andrew Tisch, I believe that nicotine is not addictive. Mr. Edward Horrigan, I believe that nicotine is not addictive. Mr. Thomas Sandefur, I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And Mr. Donald Johnson, and I too believe that nicotine is not addictive. Oaths can be leveraged to deceive. Promises can be transformed into a mechanism for deception. It's true now, and it was true in Jesus' day. Not just of savvy businessmen, but of religious leaders and religious people. When we come this morning to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 33 through 37, where Jesus takes aim at oaths. Our main idea this morning is this. Kingdom citizens pursue, well, they don't pursue, kingdom citizens live lives of integrity. Could you bring my insert back to me, brother? And I want to exhort you, in light of that, to live as if under oath, to tell the truth, or something like that. Yeah, I was close. You have it there before you. That's the main idea. That's what we are moving towards in terms of application. Your outline is there before you. You've got the command, the command's corruption, and the command's heart. Let's pray, and we'll begin working through the text together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together as your people in this place at this time. We recognize that there is something tremendously spectacular and special that happens when your people come together to sing songs to you, to pray, and to submit ourselves to your word. And so we ask once more again this morning, Lord, that you would speak, that you would help us to listen. We confess once more this morning, Lord, that we have sinned. We thank you that because of Christ, you delight to forgive our sins. We thank you that because of Christ, we can live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray that to the end of glorifying yourself, you would help us to hear Jesus' words this morning. Not pridefully with an, I already know that attitude, but humbly with a, I need to hear that posture. We pray that we would walk away with our eyes on Christ, our hearts full of grace. Your word does not return void. Cause it to do its work now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Before we get into the text, as is our pattern, we need to set the context. Matthew has introduced us to Jesus in the first four chapters of his gospel to the end of laying out Jesus' credentials as king. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah king who sits the throne of David. All the promises of God are going to come to their end in him. He's the one who brings the blessing of Abraham to all nations. Matthew takes pains to help us see this. He shows us that Jesus has uh, the right genealogical pedigree. He tells us that Jesus is so named because an angel declares to his mother who conceived him without uh, sexual intercourse that she's to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We then see that his geographical movements fulfill prophecies that we see that he is anointed as king at his baptism, the father declaring, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He succeeds when he is tempted by the evil one. And we are reminded that as Adam, the first king of the human race, failed when tempted by the evil one, so too this new king, Jesus, doesn't fail when tempted, but succeeds. He overcomes the temptation in the wilderness. He is a king that will bring not death and destruction with his life, but peace and joy. And Jesus then begins his ministry at the end of chapter 4. And we've pointed out too, he's being set up sort of a, as a new Moses, right? Uh, Jesus, his life is threatened as a child. He goes down into Egypt. Then he comes out of Egypt, goes through the waters, into the wilderness, and then onto a mountain where he preaches this sermon that we are about to enter into. So he's a true and, and better Moses. We're, we're to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the law, which he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 20. Don't think I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The end of the law, the end of the Old Covenant is Christ. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as king. Then in chapters 5 through 9, he wants to bring us into contact with the power and authority of the king. In chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus exercise power over disease, demons, and even death as he works miracles. And in chapters 5 through 7, we see Jesus' authority on display in his words, in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we are situated this morning, and there's this one big question that hangs over the whole sermon. I bring your attention to it every week, and it's this, who gets in to the kingdom of heaven? Who gets into the kingdom of God? Who is made right with God? Who are God's people? And Jesus answers, God's people, those who get into the kingdom, are those who trust in him. Those who come to him poor in spirit, asking for his grace and his mercy and his love. Chapter 5, verse 3 lays this out at the beginning of the Beatitudes and the sermon. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so who's in? Those who acknowledge that they cannot earn the kingdom of heaven on the basis of their own merits or their own good do it, good do goodness, do goodness. That's who's in. Those who trust in Christ alone. Jesus also answers this question in a second way. He shows us that those who truly have him as king are transformed in terms of their character. See, those who know the king obey the king. He says in verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who's in, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so we can see that Jesus has got a twofold goal in this wonderful teaching. One is to call us to himself. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. Salvation is his work. We do all the sinning, he does all the saving. He calls us to himself and... He calls us to holiness. You see, when we come to Christ, we are changed. We begin living like citizens of his kingdom. 
this sermon drives us to our knees in faith before Jesus, and it calls us to walk by faith according to the word of God. Jesus has accomplished this goal of both calling us to holiness and calling us to himself by uh, reminding us that we, while we ought to strive to obey the word of God, that we cannot keep it perfectly. There was this misconception among the Pharisees in particular that they could keep God's word and earn God's favor. And so at the front end of the sermon, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have said the scribes and the Pharisees are uh, the goats of religion, that the scribes are as Michael Jordan is to basketball, and the Pharisees are to righteousness as Tom Brady is to football. They are the best of the best. And so it's as if Jesus says, I want you to go play a round of golf with Tiger Woods in his prime on a Sunday while he's wearing red, and you have to beat him in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. You can't do it. These are the, the good guys. And if they're not in, who can get in? Jesus presses this point home. He says, and, and even if you think that you've kept part of the law as explained by the Pharisees, let me tell you that, that you've only scratched the surface. You haven't really kept it. He takes us beyond the law's letter to its heart. And so for those of us who have gone, well, I've kept that sixth commandment. I haven't killed anybody. He says, but I say to you, if you say fool to your brother, you've committed murder with your tongue. If you hate your brother in your heart, you have committed heart murder. You think that you have not broken the seventh commandment to not commit adultery? Well, I tell you, adultery can be committed with a lustful look. You think you have not committed adultery because you have divorced your spouses casually and flippantly under some weird pretense given to you by Hillel? Well, I say to you, one who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus takes us beyond the law's letter to its heart. And today, he discusses oaths. You can sort of see how this connects to the previous portion. He's talking about uh, adultery and broken promises. And now he transitions right into addressing our need to tell the truth, to rightly bear God's name. If uh, the sections on anger and divorce were about uh, the sixth and seventh commandment, this one is about the third commandment, as well as the, the ninth a little bit, but mostly the third. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This sounds pretty good. It makes sense. If you make an oath in the name of the Lord, you're to carry that oath out. Right? And Jesus is, is summarizing what the people have heard. He's sort of just taken a sampling of the Old Testament and summarized it. Let me give you the flavor, and I'm going to read you a few of the passages that he has in mind. First, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19.12 You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20 You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. So Jesus is, is saying, you've heard it said, if you take an oath, and the word it says you have to perform here in the ESV, that word literally is pay. He's saying you have to pay that oath off. You have to pay that debt. So if you say you're going to do something, do it. Because you have invoked the name of God. This is what ties it to the third commandment. That's Primarily what's in mind in the third commandment is how we bear the name of the Lord. I think this is easy for us to misunderstand because usually we associate the third commandment with 
well, you know, it just means don't use God's name as a curse word, right? So, so don't say uh, GD and OMG and, and, you know, when you stub your toe, uh, don't give praise to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? We've got it. We can, we can keep it. Uh, but the, the, and that's true, right? To, to reduce God's name to a four-letter word, it sullies it. It's disrespectful. It's dishonorable. That violates the third commandment, surely. But that is not what is primarily in view, What is primarily in view in the third commandment is how God's people represent God. And specifically, as it relates to their promise keeping when they tie God's name to their oaths. With me? You can see that pretty readily when we recognize that the verb in the third commandment in Exodus 20 verse 7, for take, it's not a verb that talks about us speaking. It's a verb that means to lift, to carry, to bear. And so so don't bear the Lord's name in vain. What's vain mean? Empty, in a way that's empty or worthless. We are not to misuse, wrongly bear, the name of the Lord our God. And maybe you're going, I don't understand why it's such a big deal to misuse God's name. And I think that's because in our culture, a name is more something that you have than something that you are, right? This is something somebody calls you. But in the Hebrew mind, your name is who you are. It defines you and describes you. To speak of someone's name is to speak of of them, the fullness of their character, see this when we think about how the Bible talks about God's name. We are to give praise to his name. We give glory to his name. Sometimes we sing that song, glory to his name. People are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God's name is tantamount to who God is. And so when we wrongly bear God's name and misrepresent him, we are violating the third commandment. The point of all of this is to say, those who promise to do something and tie God's reputation to it, they need to pay off those promises. Those who promise pay. It's a good command. Yet it's a command that has been corrupted. And we need to understand this corruption in order to understand Jesus' instruction here. See, what's happened is the Pharisees recognize the significance and the weight of calling God's name into a situation, of making an oath in God's name. And so, so what they have done, along with other religious folks, is they've come up with a very clever system of oath-making. So the idea is, I will swear, but not by God's name specifically, right? It's almost like when you make a promise, but you have your fingers crossed behind your back. Did you ever do that when you were a kid? Sorry, I had my fingers crossed. Don't have to keep my word. That's what they've done here. They've made little loopholes. I mean, listen to how silly it is, some of the things that they did. Um, Swearing, and this is from the Mishnah, by the way. It's like Jewish commentary. Swearing by heaven and earth was not binding, not a binding promise. Nor was swearing by Jerusalem, not binding. But swearing toward Jerusalem was binding. If one swore by the temple, it was not binding. But if one swore by the temple's gold, the oath was binding. If one swore by the altar of sacrifice, not binding. But if one swore by the gift on the altar, the oath was binding. Yikes. You can see what's going on here. The, the uh, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, fingers crossed behind my back sort of approach to oath keeping is, is going on. Oaths have become a vehicle in which, uh, upon which the Pharisees are using, I didn't use that verb, right? The the Pharisees are using oath-keeping as a vehicle to promote their own agenda. 
You with me? And so that which is supposed to ensure uh, their sincerity, that, is supposed to, that, is, that which is supposed to build confidence in their word is actually being used to promote deception. It's to create the uh, illusion of credibility. They want to further their agenda. They sort of take a... Um, Oh, let me back up. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Jacob and Laban in Genesis 29. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the story. If you remember, uh, Jacob finds this girl, Rachel, that he's really into. He says he wants her to be his wife. And so he talks to her daddy. She's the younger sister. She has an older sister. Laban's her daddy. And, and so they come to an agreement. Laban says, if you work seven years for me, then I'll give you Rachel as a wife. And so Jacob works seven years, and this is like when I was growing up, all the girls loved this Bible verse. It's like, and the years, they seemed as days to Jacob because of his love for Rachel. Mm. Mm -mm. So they, the time comes, he says, give me my wife, our festivities. And then somehow, through some hijinks, whether it be a bunch of veils or some alcohol, maybe a combination of the two, um, Laban slips Leah into Rachel's place. And I always loved how Moses very tactfully, you know, brought about this revelation in Jacob's life. It's, in the morning, behold, Leah! That's a crazy day. And so he goes to Laban and says, this isn't what I signed up for. And Laban sort of says, I had my fingers crossed, right? I have to give away the older before the younger. You know how it is. I'll still give you Rachel, but you have to work seven more years. My point is, is that's the sort of dealing that's going on. Oaths are being used as an excuse to lie. Pharisees really have taken what I call a, a Diet Coke approach to the law. Imagine... Imagine that you have, um, you're, you know those state fairs, they always have all that wonderful food. And imagine there's a person, we'll call him our fairgoer. Our fairgoer goes and orders uh, deep fried butter, deep fried Oreos, uh, deep fried candy bar, one of them giant turkey legs, uh, big old, uh, like a cup of those delicious fries, you know. And then, assuming we can order this all at the same place, usually I have to get a bunch of different vendors. We're, we're all ordering all, they all have all that stuff. Okay? And they say, and I'll have a Diet Coke with that. I'm trying to watch my figure. As laudable as our fairgoers attempt to watch their weight is, it's clear by their other decisions that they don't really care about their diet. See, likewise, in the lives of the Pharisees, their lack of commitment to actually keeping the heart of the law but instead focusing on these little kind of minimal commitments that they can keep, reveals that they're not committed to it at all. Sort of, well, I can, I can keep my oath, fingers crossed, I don't have to keep my oath. Not breaking any commandments. Jesus sees through this hypocrisy. He speaks about it in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 16, this is what he says. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Let's see what Jesus does. He says, shame on you for thinking 
that through your clever oaths and vows that you could lie to others. You'd know better. Woe to you. He makes the same point in our passage. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair of it white or black. Jesus is telling us, and telling the Pharisees, anything that you might swear upon invokes God's name because it all belongs to God. You see the progression really easily in our text. It starts big and gets small. Right? First, don't swear by heaven. Then, don't swear by earth. Smaller. Don't swear by the temple. Don't even swear by yourself. Why? Well, the reason is, heaven is the throne of God. Earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. And you are his, made in his image. You cannot make the hair on your head white or black, naturally. Some of you are out there like, I got highlights, y'all. Jesus is saying it all belongs to God. And so when you swear by anything, it involves the God who made you. Therefore, do not take an oath at all. And he gives us the heart of the command in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so you can see Jesus' point. He's saying those who are in the kingdom speak truthfully. They bear the name of God faithfully. They live with integrity. They live with such an, an integrity that they don't actually need any oath for anyone to believe their word. So comes the question, does this mean that Jesus is prohibiting all oath-taking, all promises? Are Christians allowed to make promises? Should a Christian take that oath when swearing in to testify in front of a courtroom? And do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? Can a Christian do that? Can a Christian serve in the military and make those vows? Can a Christian make vows when they get married? Or sign a membership covenant at a church? Or any particular contract, really? Can a Christian make an oath? Because after all, Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. Now, there is a minority school of opinion that answers this question, yes, uh, Jesus is prohibiting all oath-taking for all time. And uh, while I appreciate the zeal to conform oneself to Scripture, I think that approach to this particular text is a misstep, uh, that it ignores the near context in Matthew, uh, the far context in Matthew, the context of the New Testament and the context of the whole Bible. Let me tell you why. Uh, reason number one, the near context. Notice uh, just a few verses before, when talking about adultery, Jesus instructs us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our right hand. He's using exaggerated and hyperbolic language. He's saying we need to deal drastically with sin that it's not to be trifled with. We understand that. We said we don't want to go the way of Origen who castrated himself, right? It's not, we are not walking around with severed limbs and eye patches. We want to be willing to be metaphorical Christian pirates, 
drastically dealing with our sin and following Jesus. And I think likewise here, Jesus is using exaggerated language. To say something like, if you are using an oath to establish the illusion of your credibility, don't take an oath at all. If you are using oaths as an excuse to lie, don't take an oath at all. That's the near context in Matthew. Let's talk far context in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, the high priest Caiaphas marshals all of his authority and places Jesus under oath by the divine name. Look with me, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 63. Jesus is on trial. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's placed Jesus under oath. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, it is as you say, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Under oath, with God as his witness, Jesus testifies that he is the Messiah King, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he promises that from now on, they will know him as King and as Judge. And the high priest responds by tearing his robes and crying blasphemy. Jesus testifies under oath, knowing that he will provoke the events that bring about his death. He testifies under oath so that he might keep promises made long ago. He must have, in fulfillment of God's promises, his heel bruised as he crushes the head of the serpent. He must be despised and rejected by men, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He must bear the griefs and carry the sorrows of his people. He must be pierced for his people's transgressions, crushed for their iniquity. He must go as a lamb to slaughter to Calvary's hill, so that he might die beneath the just weight of God's wrath towards sinners. He must go into a rich man's grave. Jesus must go to give his life for his people so that they might live. He must go to the cross before he puts on his crown. He must do all of this in fulfillment of God's promises. And knowing all of that, Jesus testifies to the truth under oath before Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus resolves to submit himself to the curse of the cross so that liars like us, people who have bared false witness like us, can have not the hell that we have earned, but the blessing that he has earned. That's good news. Non-Christian, Jesus told the truth before God, before Caiaphas, and before the rest who are present so that all who have lied about themselves, about others, about God, can be forgiven. Friend, you, you don't have to keep believing the lies of the world. You don't have to believe that there is no God. You don't have to believe the lie that if there was a God, he could never love or forgive someone like you. You don't have to believe the lie that you have to create your own meaning in life. You don't have to believe the lie that this life is all there is, that you come from meaningless, you live a meaningless life, and die and go on to meaninglessness. 
You don't have to believe that lie. You don't have to believe the lie that you are in control of your life. No, friend, you were created with purpose. You were created in the image of God. You come from the greatest supreme being, the only God who is. He has endowed you and your life with meaning, and it will have meaning on into eternity. You were created to know the God who made you. That your sin has separated you from him. Your rebellion has separated you from him. It's placed you under his righteous wrath. But in his kindness, he has sent Jesus to take your punishment so that if you will trust in Christ the King, you can have your sins forgiven. You can throw off the lies of the world today and believe the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. You can have relationship with God. You can be free from the chains of sin and of meaninglessness. You can be made new. This is what Jesus does. He died so that our sins can be forgiven and he has risen again so we can be free from death. So that we can look forward beyond the grave and know there is eternity there. That happily ever after isn't just a line in a children's fairy tale. That it's the deepest truth of reality. That happily ever after comes to all who trust in Christ Jesus. That there there is a God whom we will worship together forever. You can have that truth. It's the only truth. It's the one that corresponds to reality. Trust Christ today. Jesus testified to the truth under oath before Caiaphas. So that we might know he is the truth. So we've, we've brought some evidence from Matthew that Jesus isn't abolishing all oaths. Let's go to the rest of the New Testament where we see Christians making vows and oaths. Chief among them, the Apostle Paul, who does it repetitively. I will not read all of the examples of Paul doing this, though they are listed in my manuscript for you to view at your pleasure. I'll read just one. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 20. Paul says, in what I am writing you before God, calling God as witness, I do not lie. There you go. Paul makes vows. So we've got got Jesus taking a vow. We've got Paul and other Christians taking vows. And lastly, uh, the whole Bible is built on God's promise to humanity. You realize this, right? Like the old covenant is promises made. And the new covenant, promises kept. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. God promised to reconcile to himself those who rebelled against him. And the whole Bible is the story about how he brought this to pass. God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He makes promises not because he has ever lied, but to bolster our confidence in him, to encourage us to trust him and to walk forward in faith. Love how Hebrews chapter 6 talks about this. Verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So Jesus is not prohibiting all oath-taking or all promise-making. No, he's saying if you're going to take an oath in order to deceive someone else, don't take an oath at all. We could just say it this way. Oaths are a poor substitute for integrity. Oaths are a poor substitute for integrity. Kingdom citizens, those who are in Christ, live with integrity. We are to be true to God's name. We're to bear his name faithfully and speak truthfully. That means we are never to use God's name to deceive others and promote our own agenda. And we do do this. If you are thinking, I've never promoted my own agenda. I think this happens a lot in churches to our shame. One of the most popular ways for it to happen is what I'll label, um, God told me, right? We love this one. We use it in a variety of ways. Christians uh, love to invoke the God told me trump card. It means nobody can argue with you because God told you, uh, especially in relationships. And so if the relationship's not going well, it, it goes this way. It's not you, and it's not me. It's God. He's told me, he's calling me, you know, to a season of singleness right now. And then that person is in a relationship a couple weeks later, you know. Uh, God really changes his mind quickly. Or I've seen the other side of it too. Uh, I think this is more legend than, than truth, but it makes the point nonetheless. There was a story of a boy in, in seminary when I was there who, after chapel one day, found an attractive young lady and went to her and said, God told me that we're supposed to get married. Being an erudite young lady, uh, she responded, he ain't told me that. <laughs> God told me. I mean, we use it as an excuse to, to change careers sometimes, right? God told me it's time for a change in my life. God's calling me somewhere else. Is he? Or do you just see a new opportunity on the horizon? Is he or you just really don't like your job? Don't deceive those around you by acting as if I have a message from God. God is pushing me this direction. Maybe he's leading you that way, but it's more faithful to say something like, I think a change is necessary. I've read the Bible where I see God's decorative will and his will of desire, how he wants me to live. I'm going to faithfully obey God's word and I'm just going to do something. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to trust God. Perhaps most damningly, God told me is used as an excuse for sin. God told me we've got a deal. He told me that I don't need to belong to a local church. He and I, we're good. I can do my thing. He does his thing. I pray every now and then. I walk outside. It's great. I don't need to be a member of a local church. I know the Bible tells me, tells me not to forsake gathering together with other Christians and to submit to Christian leaders. And I know the, the whole New Testament is written in the context of the local church and that the bride of Christ is the church. But for me, God's gone against the rest of his word. I don't need to belong to a church. I mean, I've even heard Christians say, you know, God told me to leave my spouse, even though there's no sin there. We must not bear God's name in vain. We must not misuse God's name to further our agenda. We need to be those who speak truthfully. I think one of the ways we speak most untruthfully in our culture today is by misrepresenting the viewpoints of others. This is rampant if you just try to uh, read any kind of news. Everything is so slanted, everyone is so misrepresented, that it's really hard to filter out what's actually true. Christians are, unfortunately, haven't been any better at this. Like, fake news is a thing because we refuse to try and understand others and then articulate their arguments back to them in a way that they would understand and go, yeah, that's actually what I think. We should resolve to not erect straw men that we might blow them over. 
But instead, when, when interacting with others who think differently, we want to make steel men of their arguments. So that when we do um, undermine their argument, that it actually has value. Most importantly, we want to be honest with what other people think. Because we would want them to be honest with what we think. We want to rightly represent others. Last way I'll speak to you about the importance of truth-telling and the ways that we might not do it uh, is telling hard truths, right? And I'm not talking, like, we've, in the past, we've talked about Luther's sort of dichotomy between lies that can be helpful, harmful, or humorous, and that not all deception is harmful, so you can play a game of poker and you're not sinning if you're uh, deceiving the person. In football, you can run a play-action pass, and that's not a sin because you lied about what you were going to do, Right? If your wife asks you, do I look great in this, um, you are free to say yes no matter what, right? That's, that's helpful. But there are times where we do need to speak the truth in love. And sometimes we are very hesitant to do this because we have a fear of hurting someone's feelings. But we must speak the truth. We must do so in love. Uh, otherwise, uh, the people around us in our lives, and maybe even we ourselves, uh, end up like some of those folks on American Idol back in the day. American Idol is, I don't know if it's still a thing or not. I'm getting, getting to that point where I'm not cool anymore. Assumes I was cool in the past, right? That's, uh, but there used to be people on, a, on American Idol that would show up, and you know they'd interview and be like, I really think I can win this competition. I've been working on my voice for years, and everybody tells me I'm great. And then they get up there and they sing a little bit like I do. It's, it's terrible and embarrassing. And you go, didn't someone at some point in their life come to them and say, hey man, you've got a lot of great qualities. This ain't it. <laughs> I just think of a class I had in seminary one of my professors let off the semester promising to tell us the truth. And he, would, he recounted the story of a particular student he had uh, who, you, you preach a number of sermons in sermon delivery, and uh, the student had not been able to make it through an entire sermon. They were about halfway through the semester. He'd preached twice. And so uh, after class one day, my professor pulled him to the side, put his arm around him, and said, Brother, I, I love your heart for the Lord, for ministry, it doesn't seem to me that you have the necessary skill to pursue uh, being a preaching pastor. You should probably pursue uh, being an associate or some, if you want to be in ministry, some other avenue or maybe think of, of switching to a different major or career because you, you, don't, you don't have the, the necessary skill at this point. God could develop it later on to be a preacher. That's a hard conversation to have. But you know what? That was what was for that student's good in regards to his future and his life. It was for the church's good. And for us who were listening to it, it was for our good to know, like, he's going to tell me the truth if I need to hear it. Is there somebody in your life that you need to tell the truth to? Maybe there's something that you need to hear the truth about. It's also kind of funny to me uh, when it comes to a myriad of topics, you know, sports or politics, we don't hesitate to tell people what we think. But when it comes to outward and obvious sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, silence. We should love one another enough to correct sin. It's a loving thing. I always tell people, like, if I've eaten a salad and I have greenery up in my teeth, like, it's not loving for you to not tell me. Tell me so I can get that situation figured out. You know, if my zipper's down, help a brother out. <laughs> when we see one another in sin, we, we should rightly bear God's name and tell the truth. Speak the truth in love. Corporately, there are churches 
who call themselves Christian and they have forsaken Christ. They refuse to obey his word and instead teach their preferences as if they were tantamount to God's command. Friends, may that never be true of us. Let us commit to submit ourselves to the king and to his word. Let this church be a place that rightly and faithfully bears the name of our God and King. Let what you say, brother Christian, sister Christian, be simply yes or no. Anything more than that, did you notice this last line? Anything more than this comes from evil, also could be translated rightfully, the evil one. And I actually think that's the better translation. What he's saying is, when you can't live with such an integrity that it requires you to make these sort of false vows to deceive other people, that is from Satan. The children of God are not marked by deception. Remember, sonship is, is often a functional category in Scripture rather than an ontological one. If your daddy was a baker, you're a baker, your kid will be a baker. So the son is that who does what the father does. Satan is called the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. But friends, we are no longer in the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of light, and therefore, we are to speak truth because we have become children of God, citizens of his kingdom. Do you lie? Let what you say be simply yes or no. Speak the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And even such a simple teaching. Tell the truth. It speaks volumes to us because we recognize that this is much harder than we think at first. How often are we tempted to embellish our stories to the point that they're no longer true? How often are we tempted to try and twist the truth so that we might seem more impressive, more likable? Lord, forgive us. We thank you that you love us and that despite the lies that we have told, you have brought us into your family and we now bear your name. Lord, what a wonderful privilege this is. Thank you for the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.